This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate scripture from religion one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. Let me ask you, do you live separate from the world? You know what I mean, as followers of Jesus Scripture instructs us that we must have nothing to do with the deeds of darkness. But the question is, how do we do that? I mean, does it mean you should stay away from all non-Christian people, all non-Christian places? Uh, You know, only shop at Christian stores, only read Christian books, only watch Christian movies? Some Christians seem to think so. You probably run into people like that. It's sinful to buy groceries from a non-Christian grocery store and you know, have non-Christian friends, go to non-Christian parties, listen to non-Christian music, go to non-Christian places and parties, you know, all these sorts of things. I think the problem, though, is that mentality is nearly impossible to live out consistently. We live in a world that is not fully redeemed by God, and so no matter where we go, what we do, there's going to be sinful people there. All places are sort of contaminated with sin, I suppose we could say. And so the simple fact that that sort of idea is so impossible to consistently live out should tell us that that is probably not what God had in mind when he tells us to live separate from the world. So what does he mean? Well, that's what we're going to discuss today as we look at Genesis 1-4. We're going to see in this verse how God separated light from the darkness on the first day of this creation. And from this, we're going to draw some tentative conclusions about how you and I can live separate from darkness as well without falling into that trap of religion. Sounds good? Hope you stick with me as we look at Genesis 1-4. Hey, and as with every episode from One Verse Podcast, this episode is brought to you by Logos Bible Software. Hope you have your package. If not, you can go to the show notes, click on the link there to take you over to Logos Bible Software and download yours today. You can use my coupon code jmyers 6 to get yourself 15% off any and every purchase you ever make from Logos Bible Software. And as long as you're doing that, uh, sign up to get their free books every month too. In fact, today, the day I'm recording this is September the 1st, 2015, and just today I got my email about their free commentary on the book of Amos. So I went and downloaded that already today. You can get those free commentaries as well. And make sure you sign up those. So no matter matter what package you get from Logos Bible Software, every month, every year, you're going to be getting free books uh, that you can add to your resource library. So make sure you go and visit the show notes. You can get those for yourself as well. Now with that in mind, let's get on with the show as we look at Genesis 1 verse 5. So Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6, that we should come out from the world and be separate. I'm sure you're familiar with that verse. He asks us, uh, what, you know, what has light to do with darkness and righteousness with unrighteousness? Similar verses over in, in James 4, which tells us that uh, friendship with the world is enmity with God. 
Similar verses as well in 1 John talks about how God is light, in him there is no darkness at all, and, and so because of that, we should not love the world or anything in the world, right? So do you love anything in the world? All of us do to some degree. I mean, maybe you love your car, or you love sports, or, or I mean, boy, your family, they, they are part of this world, are they not? You're supposed to love, aren't you supposed to love them? But First John, how do we not? Okay, it gets all these sorts of questions, these religious questions about how to work this out. How are we to be in the world, but not of it? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. And in the previous episode, we looked at Genesis 1-3, where God set out to reverse the darkness, that malevolent darkness from Genesis 1-2. And when God set out to uh, reverse the darkness, he did that by simply by creating light. So today, in Genesis 1-4, we're going to see what God does with the light. So here's, here's what Genesis 1-4 says. Uh, let me read it for you. Then God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. All right, so first off, I need to sort of reiterate once again that just as with every other verse in Genesis chapter 1, we could allow ourselves to get bogged down in all sorts of scientific questions about how this verse can really be true from a scientific perspective. I mean, just take, for example, this idea about dividing light from darkness. I mean, it's, the text says that God did that, that God divided the light from the darkness. But if you, if you think about light and darkness scientifically, by definition, they are divided. Uh, you have light, and it is divided from the darkness, okay? So how can it be scientifically accurate to say that God divided the light from the darkness? They're just naturally that way. And how could we get in this big debate? Well, they're naturally that way because God made them. You know, we could get that whole whole debate. There's numerous other questions as well. We, we talked about some of these previously. For example, how could there be light before there's sun, moon, and stars, and all this stuff, okay? The solution, though, remember the solution, it's the same way all the way through. This is not a scientific book. It's not a scientific manual. It's not a, it's not a scientific treatise. This is poetry. It's literature. And it, it's, it's a literary masterpiece. It's a creation song. Is what this is, okay? And part of the literary genius of this story in Genesis 1 is how it's connected with the literary myths, the, the, the religious myths, which are also literary, of the time, such as uh, the creation myths from Egypt and Babylon. All right, so what Moses is trying to do when he writes this is he's not giving us a scientific manual on how the world began. He's giving us a theological, literary, poetic masterpiece to show us how Yahweh is better and different and superior than the gods of the Babylonian and Egyptian uh, deities that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, would have been familiar with at that time. All right, so we talked about that in the past, in previous episodes. We will be talking about it a lot in the future, so let's just move on. We won't need to say anything more about that here. Um, let's just begin with what the text says. So in Genesis 1-3, uh, God created light, and now in Genesis 1-4, God saw the light. That's what we, we read next. Uh, you know, and here, here's another one of these scientific questions. People sometimes criticize this. Oh, well, you don't actually see light. It's the other way around. Light allows you to see. Uh, in fact, there's a great theological point there. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, uh, once, one time he was asked why he was a Christian, and here's what he said. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. All right, so uh, you could say that uh, what we have here is a theological truth, 
about light allowing us to see, even though the text says God saw the light. Okay, what he actually saw was what the light revealed. We could argue that way. But the truth is we have a, this is not a, again, not a scientific manual. Okay, pound that through your head. Uh, The reason the text is written this way is because it's a literary theological masterpiece. And the action of God seeing, when he sees the light, Moses is introducing to us a theme that is found all over the place in Genesis, in fact, in the rest of Scripture as well. Uh, John Salehammer, he wrote a commentary on Genesis. There's uh, links in the show notes to his excellent commentary as well. Uh, he points out that the first name given to God, the first official name given to God in the book of Genesis is given to him, you ready, by Hagar, not even a Hebrew woman, or not even a Hebrew person, and not even a man. It's a, it's a, she, she is a non-Hebrew uh, woman, and uh, it's in Genesis 16, 13, and she calls God the God who sees. El Roy is, is what it is in Hebrew. Then over in Genesis 22, also a key chapter uh, about the, the character of God. That's the chapter where uh, God halts or stops Abram from sacrificing his son, and basically the truth there is that God does not want or require human sacrifice. Anyway, the story concludes in Genesis 22 by describing God as the the God who sees. Uh, Later in Genesis uh, 1, in fact, in this very chapter, we're going to see that God invites mankind to see. Okay, so God sees, and then he invites mankind to also imitate God in seeing. That's Genesis 1.29. But if you read further on, you may remember, one of the ways, one of the things they first do with this gift of seeing is what? Eve sees the fruit of the forbidden tree and how pleasant it was to the eye. That's Genesis 3, 6. Okay. Then um, there, there's even later what happens on the sixth day of creation. God saw everything he had made, and it was very good. And that is a complete contrast to what happens to the earth after Adam and Eve sinned by eating of the forbidden tree. Uh, after creation, God saw everything was good. But after sin, Genesis 6, 5... God saw the world again, but this time it was not good. Instead, he saw that the whole world was full of wickedness and violence. Okay, so uh, the, Genesis 1-4 uh, is introducing to us this, this concept of seeing, seeing rightly, seeing correctly. And that becomes a super important characteristic of God, not just in Genesis, but throughout the entire rest of the Bible, and also how he wants us as humans created in the image of God, to see things rightly also, to see our circumstances and other people and current events with redeemed spirit-filled eyes, to, uh, to see things as they really are, to, to, to see thing, uh, things as to know the truth about them. Okay, so just keep that in mind as you read through Genesis, uh, it, this, this idea of seeing very important theological point, and it is emphasized in the rest of Genesis and Scripture as well. Uh, the text goes on, though, Genesis 1-4 goes on, to say that God doesn't just see the light. He saw something specific about the light, and uh, specifically that it was good. All right, and you, you are familiar with this. The, the goodness of God's creation is emphasized over and over and over in Genesis 1. Uh, it's crucial to remember, though, and I need to point this out, um, when God gets done with creation, he saw all that he'd made, and it was very good. But sometimes, 
in religious circles, we get the idea that only spiritual things are good and all physical things are bad. Uh, It's an old Gnostic heresy, actually, that the early church often dealt with. Uh, uh, John deals with this much in 1 John. Uh, uh, But uh, we still deal with it today sometimes when, even in Christian circles, we get this idea about the only thing that's important is escaping this earth and going to heaven, and, you know, it's all going to burn, and and how this world is just full of filth and sin and evil, and we just are waiting and praying and keeping our eyes fixed on heaven so that God can sweep us up off this horrible, dirty, evil planet and take us to heaven where we can live with him in eternal bliss, right? You've probably heard sermons like that, and that sort of expresses this idea that the physical world, this human world, the material world, is evil and sinful, Whereas the spiritual world, the heavenly world, the otherworldly world, that's the good world. And we're just sort of twiddling our thumbs, waiting around until God rescues us from this evil planet and takes us to heaven. Okay, But that is that Gnostic heresy, sort of this dualistic idea coming out again. And it completely contradicts what we read about here in Scripture, where God, every time he creates, not every time, not with every day, we'll see why in just a second, but, but especially when he gets to the end of creation, he saw all that he had made, and it was good. All right, And um, you'll notice as we go through that he only says it was good about the things that are good for humans. Everything from God's perspective is good, but in Genesis 1, when God says it was good or it is good, when he identifies something as good, it is primarily good for the pinnacle of his creation, for Adam and Eve. Uh, We'll see this as we go through, but um, what makes something good in Genesis 1 is that it is beneficial for mankind. All right, just just as an example, you take day two. We'll we'll look at that in a couple of shows, but in, in day two... Um, it's not called good. What he, what the, the, the land is good, um, but it is still hidden under, under the deep, under the waters, and, which is brought forth in day three. So the land uh, is brought forth in day three, and so it is good. But, but uh, you know, humans, we don't really live in the heavens, in the sky, and we don't live necessarily under the water. So when God separates the waters above from the waters below, it's not called good. Only when the land comes forth. Okay, so here's the point. Uh, God knows what is good for mankind, and God brings it into existence. And God's purpose in creation is to uh, give what is good to mankind. And that's so important to remember, because when you look around and you see the things God has made for us, the, the beauty of creation, and boy, taste buds, and just think of the five senses we have and how beautiful they are. These things God made for us are given to us for the purpose of enjoying what he made. God's not a killjoy. He, he, he doesn't want us to suffer and live our lives with sour frowns on our face all the time. His entire creative purpose was to give good things and good experiences for the good of humanity, for for you and me to enjoy. When you enjoy a good meal, it is an act of worship to God because he gave you taste buds and he gave you tasty food. Obviously, we can't overdo it, okay? There's balance, all these sorts of things. Uh, but hiking and beautiful, seeing beautiful things and uh, this, using your sense of, of taste and touch and, and eyesight, okay, hearing beautiful music, these things are good and wonderful. 
All right, the, the, the sense of uh, goodness obviously can be abused. Um, we'll see in Genesis three six again, along with the scene abusing of the scene. Um, Eve saw the fruit and saw that it was good. At least she thinks it was good, and it turns out to not be good for her at all. That's Genesis three six. And uh, again, we'll talk about all about that. But just remember, this creation is good. What God gave to us is good. It's a wonderful gift. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, behind the theology of the text, I want to mention this as well, there's emotion in this text. Often we tend to read the Bible sort of non-emotionally. We, we, we take the emotion out of it. But I really want to encourage you, as you read through the Bible, especially Genesis, read it with emotion. Try to think about the emotions that are behind the text. Here, I think, in Genesis 1, Four, I think the emotions are awe and wonder. I, I, I sense that God himself is pleased with his creation. He's pleased at the beauty and majesty of, of and the wonder of, of light shining in the darkness. If you have ever lived in the darkness or spent a lot of time in the darkness, you know how wonderful it is to see the light again. And I think that's the idea here. If you've ever gotten up very early in the morning to watch the sun rise, you know how beautiful it is to watch the sun rise up over the eastern horizon. Maybe you stayed up late to look at the stars shining in the sky. If you've ever seen the Milky Way painted across the dark sky, you know how beautiful it is. Um, The feeling of joy and beauty you, you, you feel, the awe that rises in your heart when you see the light. Next time you do that, Remember, this is the feeling of, emo- of, of creation, of the day one of creation. Next time you are just in awe of the light, remember Genesis 1, 4, that God saw the light and it was good. You are seeing the light and it also is good. Okay, You are going back to day one of creation when you remember that, when you see the light. It's a beautiful, beautiful emotion to remember whenever we see the light. But what about the darkness, all right? Uh, When God created the light, what did he do with the darkness? Remember, as we saw in Genesis 1-2, it's this, uh, there's these four sinister sort of malevolent terms there in Genesis 1-2. One of them is darkness. And so, uh, from a Hebrew perspective, and in fact, even in various places in Scripture, darkness is often associated or equivalent or equal to evil. And so the idea would be, well, if God created light, then he must have banished the darkness. You and I know he didn't, of course. Uh, but that is the question, another question that comes to us from Genesis 1-4. Now that God created light, does the darkness go away? Does he banish, destroy, get rid of the darkness? But he doesn't. At the end of Genesis 1-4 we read, God divided the light from the darkness. Now, we're going to go on in verse 5 in the next show, when we look at Genesis 1-5, uh, to see what exactly God does with the darkness, uh, why he kept the darkness around. But to close out today, uh, let me just focus on that word divided. Uh, This sort of brings us back to what we began to talk about today. Uh, That word divided can be understood as separated. But it doesn't doesn't mean that they were pulled apart, but uh, that they each were assigned their proper place. uh, That's what it means to be separated. Now, uh, some scholars believe the reason this word is found so frequently in the opening chapter of Genesis, in fact, it's found here and, and really nowhere else in Genesis at all, this idea of separation or d- division, divided, uh, 
And the reason some some scholars think the reason is because the Israelites, remember, they are about to enter the promised land of Canaan, and Moses wanted to emphasize to them the importance of living lives of separation from the Canaanites, from their idolatry and their their wicked ways. Uh, And so that's why some people think, and of course, uh, boy, you preach that, and that message is going to preach in a lot of churches today, as it has down through the centuries. Uh, You know, according to many Christians— God wants us to be separate. How many times have you heard a sermon on 2 Corinthians 6, 17 about coming out from them and be ye separate, says the Lord, you know, to live lives of separation, holiness, avoid contamination, right? Stay away from sinners and idolaters. You know, all we've all heard sermons. I've preached probably a few like that back when I was a pastor. It really sounds like a message you're going to hear in pulpits and, and, and Christian books and on the Christian radio and maybe even some other podcasts and blogs, right? Pastors will point to that those statements in 2 Corinthians 6, which seem to teach that, and passages out of James and 1 John and so many other places. In fact, uh, even in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul alludes to creation, the creation account, the, the separation of light and darkness, but, uh, when he says, and what communion has light with darkness? That's what he says there. You know, we're not talking about 2 Corinthians 6 today, and I, I really can't get into Paul's point there. Uh, I will say it is often misunderstood and misapplied, in my view anyway. I do want to talk, though, about the connection between what Moses is writing here in Genesis 1-4, and how this statement here is often misunderstood and misapplied. And I think once you hear this, you will understand what Paul means in 2 Corinthians 6 as well. So, first of all, let's just admit the obvious. Yes, Moses does write about separation, uh, but the point is not that we must live separate lives. I don't think that's the point he was trying to make. Uh, we will see this in later verses. Um, th- there's good types of separation, and there's bad types of separation. Uh, one of the best commentaries on Genesis, uh, it's the Victor by Victor Hamilton, New International Commentary on the Old Testament. There's a, a link to that in the show notes as well. By far, in my opinion, one of the best commentaries available on Genesis. It's a two-volume. Anyway, he says this. Let me read a quote from Genesis. He says, These opening chapters of Genesis provide a contrast between a separation that is wholesome and a separation that is malignant. In creation, there is a separation toward order, light from darkness, waters above from waters below, day from night, woman from man. In sin and trespass, there is a separation toward disorder, man and woman from God, man from woman, man from the soil, man from a garden. Okay, so what, what Victor Hamilton is saying there is, and he goes on to explain it more, but what he's saying is that separation by itself is not good. To live lives of separation, uh, we must separate from, uh, the, the right way to live a life of separation is to separate from the right things in the right way. And in my opinion, religion, especially some versions of Christianity, usually get this separation all mixed up and backwards. We, we are told to separate from the wrong things in the wrong way. Um, you know, we're told to separate from people, places, and events, yet we then align ourselves with with worldly values and systems of of evil and violence and dishonor and power games of manipulation and control, when those are the things, in my opinion, we're supposed to separate from, while joining with, uniting ourselves with the people and places and events um, that are often 
captive to those sorts of things. So anyway, in my opinion, religion separates from the wrong things the wrong way, and uh, God in Jesus Christ, even here in Genesis, we see ways to rightly separate ourselves uh, from the world. So, so look, I'm not denying anything the Bible says anywhere about separation. Separation from the world is important. Hear me on that. Separation from the world is important, but we must make sure that we separate from the right things, or maybe separate from the wrong things, however you want to understand that. Uh, religion often tells us to separate from the wrong things, and uh, meanwhile, joining with other things. I hope that's sort of clear. Uh, the, the, of course, the, the trick is figuring out which is which. Uh, but typically what happens is religion tells us to separate from people. Oh, you can't be with those people because they're sinners. Uh, they don't look like us. They don't act like us. They don't talk like us. They don't believe like us. They don't dress like us, right? But you look at Jesus, he never separated from people this way. Jesus always went out of his way to be friends with everybody and anybody he could. In fact, I suppose the only people he separated himself from were the religious people, and that's because they separated themselves from him. He would have loved, in fact, every chance he got, he hung out with religious people too. But they just couldn't handle it that he wanted to also be friends with sinners, you know, the people who would talk different and act different and dress different. And I fear sometimes that religious people are making the same mistake today. We make all these rules about the people we can't hang out with, whereas at the same time, Jesus is with those people. Uh, Even there are certain behaviors, I suppose, religion says is taboo. You know, you can't, maybe not so much today, but a lot of traditional religious rules are like things you can't can't dance, you can't drink, you can't play cards or go to R-rated movies. I don't think those are as popular as they were today. But uh, meanwhile, while you're making all these rules about things you can't do, uh, truly Biblical sins such as pride, greed, gossip, slander, judgmentalism, these things are overlooked, easily forgiven, sometimes even encouraged in our churches, right? So, uh, yes, God does want you and me to live separate lives, right? But we must live a life of separation the way Jesus did, not the way the religious people did in Jesus' day. In God's creation, as in the life of Jesus, light shines best when it is in the darkness. Okay, That's sort of the principle I want you to leave our study with today. If you want to take a lesson from Genesis 1-4 and the life of Jesus and so on, I recommend, look, you are a light, a city on a hill, Jesus says. And what do you do with that light? Well, it does no good to shine in the light. you got to go shine in the darkness. If you want your light to shine in the darkness, obviously you need to be in the darkness. In the darkness is where your light will shine the brightest. So if you want to live a life of separation, guess what that means? It means to live as a light in the darkness. You must take your light and enter into the darkness. Uh, That is where your light will shine the brightest. Um, There is a religious way to separate from the darkness. It's to make laws and rules and regulations, who you can spend time with, what you can do, where you can go. Uh, and then there's the way, there's, there's God's way, and that's the way of redemption, of, of reconciliation. It's what we see God doing here in Genesis 1-4. We'll talk a lot more about this in Genesis 1-5. Uh, 
the way of reconciliation and redemption is what we see Jesus doing throughout his life and his ministry. Uh, and this way is to recognize that people, places, and events are not evil. Uh, there is evil in them, but they are not evil. They are good. God created them good. Uh, the darkness we are to separate from, you ready for this? Is the darkness that is in our own hearts. It's the darkness of hatred, anger, jealousy, judgmentalism, selfish, envy, violence. You probably recognize some of those. They come from Galatians 5. When you separate yourself from the darkness in this way, you begin to see that darkness isn't in other people or in places or in events. The darkness God wants us to separate from is the darkness that is in our own hearts. And when we begin to recognize that, um, then God begins to redeem any darkness in us, to rescue us from it, to reconcile it, and then allows us to be used to help reconcile similar forms of darkness in other people as well. And that's how we shine in the darkness. That's how we are light in the darkness. And that's what we're beginning to see here in Genesis 1. In Genesis 1, verse 2 and verse 3, we saw that God set out to wage war against those malevolent forces that were listed there in Genesis 1-2. But he doesn't do it with warfare and violence. He does it by gently fluttering like a dove over the surface of the waters. And then he whispers quietly with a still, small voice into the dark. Why does God wage war that way against the violence, against the darkness? Well, we're beginning to see why now. It's because he doesn't wish to defeat or banish the darkness or to home the deep. No, he wishes to redeem them, to rescue them. He wishes to use these forces and powers for his own glory. That's why God moves gently and quietly, because that is how redemption occurs. We'll look, a lot, look at this a lot more next time in Genesis 1-5. We'll see that even darkness has a role and a place within God's good creation. Uh, we'll see that light helps us understand the darkness, what it is and what it is not. And most importantly of all, where the darkness is in us and how God can use us to redeem the darkness to become something he calls good. Until then... I would love for you to come and leave your thoughts about this podcast on the blog. Uh, look, I, I want to know what you think about this. Am I out to lunch? Can God really redeem the darkness? And if so, how can he do that with the darkness in this world today? How can he do this with the darkness in our own lives? In fact, you know what I would like to know? I would like to know what areas of darkness you see in the world around you and what God can do about it. Especially maybe how God can use the light, your light, to shine in that darkness as well. Leave a comment on this. Go to redeeminggod.com, Genesis 1-4, and you can leave a comment there. And hey, you know what? As long as you're leaving comments, I would love if you would go leave a review, a rating and review at iTunes. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. That way other people can find this podcast, listen to it, be encouraged. Also do a study on Genesis along with you. Let's go leave that rating and review at iTunes. It's going to help other people. I would really appreciate it. I read every single one. Thank you for listening. Join us next time as we look at Genesis 1-5 and finish day one. 
and see how God uses the darkness in his plan of creation. See you then.